Good morning. And on behalf of the Hudson Institute, I would like to welcome all our viewers around the world. I am Hussein Haqqani, a Senior Fellow and Director of South and Central Asia Program here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, Hudson Institute is a research organization promoting American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free and prosperous future of the world. Uh, Pakistan has often been a country in crisis, but over the last few months, it remains mired in a poly crisis, political, social, economic, and security. General elections are scheduled to be held in end January, uh, extending the term of the caretaker government by three months. And even then, there are people who are skeptical about the prospect of a free and fair election. The omnipotent Pakistan security establishment has regained its supremacy with a vengeance and appears to be more in control today than it has been in recent years. Inflation remains at an all-time high and economic growth has slowed down with contraction in both agricultural output and the industrial sector. A very young population has a very large percentage of unemployment. The Tehrike Taliban Pakistan, which is the Pakistani Taliban, continues to undertake terrorist attacks across the country uh, using safe havens across the border in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Afghanistan has proven to be a peric victory for Pakistan. Pakistan had supported the Taliban for many years. So what is the future for Pakistan? I have written extensively on the subject, but today I am going to defer to the wisdom of uh, a younger generation of Pakistan-born experts who know much more than many of us about the current mood of the country and have their own ideas about how things might shake out in Pakistan. I'm not going to read the long bio, bio, bios of my guests, but let me introduce them quickly. Ambar Rahim Shamsi is director of the Center for Excellence in Journalism at the Institute of Business Administration in Karachi. She is an award-winning multimedia journalist with wide-ranging experience in television, radio, online, and in the print media. Aswandiyar Mir is senior expert at the United States Institute of Peace here in Washington, D.C. He has written extensively on national security and foreign policy issues with a focus on counterterrorism, South Asia, security affairs, social media, and politics. And Uzair Yunus is director of the Pakistan Initiative at the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center. He regularly publishes articles on South Asian politics and economic issues for the Profit Magazine and Dawn, and he has been featured on various news outlets, including Bloomberg, CNN, and CNBC. He also has a thriving uh, practice uh, in consulting, uh, primarily uh, about how to connect public goods and profitability in South Asia. So before we deep dive, uh, deep dive into issues, let us first get a sense of what is happening in Pakistan today. Amber, I will start with you. And the reason for that is that you're on ground. You're in Pakistan's largest city, Karachi. Could you provide our audience with an on-ground assessment of the political uh, lay of the land? Uh, thank you so much. And I think that you framed it really well. It is a polycrisis, naturally. And, and how are people dealing with this polycrisis? Um, 
obviously i think the biggest uh, sort of top of mind more than anything else at the moment is is the economic challenge which is inflation uh which is um you know possibly at historic high and i'm sure rosaire would confirm this but um it isn't just that it is at a historic high it is that it's been consistently high um and people's um uh, cost of living has increased uh, they're finding it difficult to pay for um education um and we see that in some of the figures uh, in terms of um, uh, where people are placing their kids. So the, the preferences for private schools, even if they're low-cost private schools, uh, a lot of uh, people who can't afford it are either pulling their uh, children out of school or putting them into government schools. Um, electricity bills are very, very high. I, you know, just... Uh, the other day, in the, in the the lift operator at my university was uh, talking to somebody and he was uh, saying, uh, he was talking about how he can't pay the bill because his bill is at least a, a third to more than half of his um, income uh, that he earns and he was thinking of borrowing. So obviously people are either borrowing or cutting down on important costs like education um, uh, and petrol is so high that a lot of people are also just talking about how they're sort of reducing uh, commutes, um, trying to find ways to not go out. Um, and it seems contradictory when you see how people are also still you know um going out to restaurants and uh, all of that but we have to remember that's a very small percentage of the population get, keeps getting talked about but the important thing just sort of broadly how are people surviving and living that's difficult um i i, I don't know anybody now who doesn't um, have two jobs who doesn't have a side gig of some sort or the other um and that sort of is is taking its toll on people and they obviously need somebody to blame uh, at the moment, they're blaming uh, the last government, uh, the uh, Pakistan Democratic Movement, which is a coalition of several uh, political parties, most notably the Pakistan Muslim Nawaz, uh, the JUIF, which is a right-wing party led by Maulana Fazur Rahman. Uh, part of this coalition was uh, the Pakistan People's Party as well. But I think more so just just uh, since the prime minister was Shabash Sharif from the Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz um, and the finance minister was also of the PMLN. Um, a lot of the sort of, I think, responsibility lays on their shoulders and people are are laying it on their shoulder. And, and because they feel people feel that, you know, um, the last government is responsible for the more difficult economic challenges that they're facing. Um, you also see concurrently uh, a rise in the popularity of Imran Khan, who is uh, in jail uh, at the moment uh, under various charges, most uh, significantly, obviously, uh, the cipher conspiracy case, which we'll also talk about. So uh, Imran Khan's popularity has obviously risen since the vote of no confidence last year in April, which ousted him, uh, partly because Imran Khan played up uh, or played into many of the, uh, you know, Pakistani's fears about uh, the foreign interference. Uh, Imran Khan tapped into that. Uh, America had clearly, you know, according to him, America had interfered and had him removed because of his stance on Russia. Uh, he went to Russia on the eve of uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine um, and various other reasons. Uh, he presented his, obviously, that's one reason. And the second reason um, is partly, I think, just the sort of uh, challenge or the, the difficulty governing this country, which has escalated over the past few years. So that's sort of what's mm -hmm. happening in terms of the economic challenge and how it's impacting uh, the political challenge at the same time. Any, sign, any mm -hmm. sign of an election? 
Yes, that's a sort of big question, isn't it? Uh, I think you said that at the beginning. Um, you know, at the moment, uh, elections seem to be happening. And, and I'll tell you why. There were several things that several things that the um, uh, military establishment, uh, as well as the BDM government, needed to happen before they could uh, go forward with elections. And I think uh, one was uh, the IMF deal, so the standby agreement, which came in, uh, this or, or the economic challenge, which for which they've created this the special investment uh, council as well. Uh, and we can talk about more that uh, later as well. Uh, the other thing was the political, uh, which is what to do with Imran Khan, 9th May, uh, and the attacks on military installations uh, by Pakistan Tariq and Saf workers and leaders uh, provided the military a very sort of convenient way of clamping down on the Pakistan Tariq and Saf and Imran Khan. Um, and we've just seen yesterday, for instance, one key young leader uh, gave a very uh, an astonishing interview uh, to an anchor person uh, claiming that he he uh, had witnessed Imran Khan masterminding the 9th May attacks, which... So the basically the repression, sorry, basically the repression seems to be working in the sense, uh, not in the sense of, you know, human rights, uh, which obviously are being trampled, but in the sense of uh, putting pressure uh, on the political party of Imran Khan while he and his uh, other top leaders are in prison and those who are out are having to distance themselves from him. Absolutely, there, there is absolutely clear signs of pressure as well. So I think just because we, even though the economic challenge hasn't been resolved, um, the political challenge, as far as I can see, has to some extent been resolved. So even though Imran Khan, uh, according to recent Gallup surveys and anybody that you talk to, if you go on the ground, they, people would want to, <coughs> I apologize, vote for Imran Khan. Uh, but at the same time, given that so many uh, of his party leaders have, have left him and the few that have remained will find it difficult to sort of cobble together the candidates for various constituencies. So that would okay. offer seem Yes. Zair, let's turn to you for a moment. Uh, there are those who argue that this political crisis is a sideshow, that Pakistan's biggest crisis this time around is economic. And in fact, it's the economic challenge which is aggravating the political crisis too. If the public had less issues to worry about, about the things that Amber has spoken about, electricity bills, uh, not being the middle class, not being able to send their children to school, um, the poorer classes totally marginalized. And uh, but but I think that they are a bit used to it. They've gone through many phases. Of, of not having uh, essentials, a larger percentage of Pakistan's population moving uh, below the poverty line, according to most um, to, to recent uh, uh, numbers. What is your take on the economic challenges, Ozer? Thank you, thank you for that question and for having me. Um, I think you're you're partly right. I would say on the fact that people in the lower income bracket are used to these crises in Pakistan. So if I look at the data, for example, since the turn of the 21st century, among its peer group of economies that were part of its peer uh, at the turn of the century, perhaps may not be today, for example, India and Vietnam, um, Pakistan has had uh, the second uh, lowest rate of annual average growth, um, uh, the, the lowest rate of average annual growth and the second highest average annual rate of inflation. Um, this includes Nigeria, Morocco, Vietnam, India, Bangladesh, et cetera. Um, so in that sense, we know for 23 years, Pakistan has been lagging, that data proves it. But what's different this time around 
is that over the last three to four years, Pakistan has had an immensely uh, divergent experience on the inflation front, something Umber was referring to as well. And the data then shows us that, for example, over the last three years, the rate of inflation in Pakistan cumulatively has been over 100%, whereas in Bangladesh and India, it's been roughly 25 to 30 odd percent. So a three times div uh, divergence in the rate of inflation. What that means is that not only has this impacted, this crisis has now impacted um, the lower economic rungs of society, which, you know, one in four children malnourished, et cetera, um, you know, almost half of young women uh, illiterate in Pakistan. So, you know, that that already was a problem. But now it's bleeding into the middle and upper middle class, the aspirational classes of Pakistan. So their purchasing power has been fundamentally destroyed and it will take years to recover from that crisis. So it's different in that sense. Now, did it have to be this way? Uh, my answer to that is absolutely not. It didn't have to be this way. It has been a series of faulty economic choices Pakistan's elites have made over the last few years that have exacerbated this crisis. So for example, in the run-up to the vote of no confidence that Amber was referring to, Imran Khan's party put out a petroleum subsidy that basically not only put a big hole, a gaping hole in the fiscal deficit, but put the IMF program on track. And the PDM government came in, they were so unsure about what they wanted to do that they actually continued with this subsidy for weeks on end before they went back. But by the summer of 2022, they had a grip on it. The IMF had come back in and, and the situation was moving forward. But then uh, Mr. Nawaz Sharif sitting in London and his family decided that the then finance minister, Dr. Miftah Ismail, was not up to the task. And they sent their relative Ishaq Dar into Pakistan as the finance minister who promised to bring the value of the dollar down, et cetera. We all know about it. That change of policy put the IMF program back off track. And it put the economy in this wave, in this period of uncertainty that continued through early 2023, when the prime minister then finally realized, Shabar Sharif, that he had to intervene and deal with the IMF himself because his finance minister was not up to the task. And I think it has been that series of errors in that era that compounded the problems facing the economy to which then meant that the IMF program was off track and then Mr. Sharif's interventions led to a new agreement with the IMF. But even at this point in time, when there has been so much talk about a special investment facilitation council, uh, crackdown on, on smuggling, closures of the Afghanistan border, Pakistan's policymakers are continuing to think that by overvaluing the rupee, for example, or curbing quote-unquote smuggling and, and, and hoarding in the economy, they can solve this problem. Whereas the real problem is the fiscal deficit side issue and the fact that Pakistan's rich continue to refuse to pay a fair share of taxes even amidst a historic crisis in the country. And so long as that remains the case, elections or no elections, free and fair elections or a quasi-hybrid regime or a dictatorship, if the decision matrix does not change, this crisis will continue to worsen. So my view always has been, even if you have elections, a new government without the roadmap or one that follows economics theories will only exacerbate this crisis moving forward. So a long-term crisis exacerbated by the mistakes of the last two years. That's a summary of what you have said. Uh, the populist wave, on the one hand, reflects uh, a, a, the, the resentment of what you call the aspirationalist class of Pakistan. And they are probably more pro Imran Khan uh, than many others and have kept him alive politically. Uh, but at the same time, 
uh, his return to power is not necessarily uh, going to be uh, particularly good for the economy. So hold that thought. We'll come back to this subject of who or uh, what might be better for the Pakistani economy than the other. But overall, your uh, characterization is that it is has it has been a slow moving train wreck rather than something that has just happened right now. Asamya, the security situation in Pakistan has worsened since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan. Some of us had predicted it. Uh, but uh, the Pakistani military had thought that it, this was the best way to secure Pakistan. Uh, they thought that uh, the Taliban will be the regime in Afghanistan. And once they are there, uh, then Pakistan will be in a better position to deal with India. Uh, none of that has panned out as planned. And amid the political and economic crisis, uh, tensions have emerged with the Afghan Taliban. There is an attempt to try and uh, se send back or force back a large number of Afghan refugees in Pakistan back to Afghanistan. What And of course, there have been the terrorist attacks by the TTP. What do you see as the key issues in the security sector for Pakistan? Sure. Um, thank you, Ambassador Kani, for first of all, convening this discussion. Thank you to Hudson. And uh, it's great to be uh, a part of this uh, this panel with, with Ozer and Amber. Look, you. Uh, I think the, the the premise is absolutely correct. Uh, Pakistan um, supported the Taliban insurgency uh, and was very ex excited and and happy when the Taliban rose to power in August 2021. Uh, but soon after, I think that uh, um, uh, the the Taliban's return to power uh, it it became clear was going to be a big challenge for Pakistan. And that's the scale of that challenge has only grown and expanded uh, in the last two, two years. I think the big challenge right now is the, the Taliban support for the for the TTP, the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan. There is a lot of violence in uh, Pakistan's uh, borderlands, uh, you know, along Pakistan's western border, right up from the north in Chitral down to to Balochistan, uh, and this violence is uh, is becoming more lethal, uh, and it is primarily driven by the TTP's bases and safe havens in in Afghanistan, which the the Taliban are uh, are, are not only shielding, but uh, I I I believe that the Taliban are providing a lot of material help uh, to the TTP uh, as well. The big question is why are the Taliban doing that? Um, I think the conventional wisdom in Pakistan remains that uh, perhaps the Taliban are stuck with the TTP, that this is an entity that supported the Taliban in the insurgency against the, the United States and the former Afghan Republic. There are ties, familiar tribal, uh, you know, uh, wartime ties that bind these two organizations. And therefore it is very difficult for the Taliban to get uh, get rid of the TTP, to go after it, to restrict, restrain it in a, in a meaningful way. Uh, that's a possibility. I think the other sort of bigger, more dangerous uh, uh, possibility is that perhaps the Taliban buy into the TDP's political project of uh, obtaining, um, uh, of you know, of implementing uh, a Taliban-like state in parts of Pakistan, if not all of Pakistan, and that the Taliban's policy then, in effect, is um, is uh, you know is. Uh, is in you know they're trying to engineer some kind of a regime change operation at least in a in a part of Pakistan. So, so if that's the case, I think Pakistanis are in a lot of trouble. Um, some some of the tactics that they are trying to pressure the Taliban to revisit their calculus, 
my my fear is that that may not work. There's other terrorist violence, you know, uh, by ISIS, for example, uh, it has mounted over the last year or so as the Taliban have cracked down against ISIS. Some of that threat has been displaced into Pakistan. And we're now seeing mass casualty attacks in places like Mastung, uh, in, in Balochistan, among, among other regions. Other issues, security issues that I track, I'd really flag to. One is, uh, you know, Pakistan's uh, traditionally hard border with India. Um, and, you know, over the last uh, three years now, that border has been relatively quiet. There's been a ceasefire along the line of control uh, in, in the Kashmir region. Um, and, you know, that ceasefire uh, appears to be holding up. There is some talk that perhaps the ceasefire is framed, that, that Pakistan is maybe activating, you know, jihadis once again and wants to push them across the border. But by and large, you know, I, you know, I don't see much of an effort from the Pakistani side to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to sort of get rid of the ceasefire. I think the Pakistanis are interested in, in very much preserving the ceasefire, partly because of the pressures they are facing on the Western border. The third and sort of the big issue in the set of strategic competition, intensifying strategic competition is Pakistan's alignment with China. Uh, and, you know, Western capitals are watching uh, Pakistan's relationship with China very closely, especially given the economic troubles that Pakistan has had, due to which China's influence on Pakistan has, uh, has mounted considerably. Uh, and we see signs of closer alignment. Uh, Pakistan now possesses, um, you know, uh, a lot of Chinese military hardware. Uh, at the same time, we see uh, some some caution uh, on part of Pakistani leadership, in particular military leadership. Uh, they have stayed out of the India-China border dispute for the last few years. Uh, and I think there is still uh, an open question as to whether they will permit any kind of Chinese military access basing in Pakistan, so people continue to watch that issue very closely. Great. Uh, Amber, let's come back to you. The picture you painted was of Pakistanis being an unhappy nation right now. The populace is unhappy. And yet you said establishment seems to have put in place uh, all elements that would uh, ensure that if they hold an election, uh, the results would not be uh, really alarming for them because otherwise they wouldn't be holding the election. Uh, explain that to us and especially to an American audience and an international audience. Uh, what are you saying here? Uh, usually repression annoys people and uh, by all accounts, there has been significant repression of PTI supporters. Um, why would that not result in the manifestation of PTI support at the ballot box, uh, instead of having a result that would be more supportive or at least acceptable to the military establishment. Right. Um, uh, Imran Khan and the Pakistan Tehreek and Saab, obviously, um, uh, how they came into power was. Uh, uh, supported within by, by uh, officers within the military establishment, uh, former spy chief, for instance. Um, and um, the 2018 elections were controversial. Uh, the parties that did not uh, you know, make it uh, to the right side of the aisle in parliament, uh, whether it was Pakistan People's Party, PMLN, JUIF, they all crowd, cried foul, uh, and for good reason. Um, this is well, 2018 was the first time, for instance, that um, 
the result management system put into place to make uh, election um, uh, result management much more transparent. Actually, you know, it 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 fell flat very badly. It crashed. Um, there was a lot of pre-election rigging, particularly against the Pakistan Muslim Nawaz, who were out of favor with the army as well. Um, many of their leaders were in jail. Nawaz Sharif returned from uh, London at that time just to go, go back to jail. So um, the 2018 elections were controversial and rigged in favor of Imran Khan. Once Imran Khan fell out of favor with the military establishment, um, particularly, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 9th May was a kind of red line because until 9th May, Imran Khan had been free um, to speak about um, the military's role, certain officers who he had accused of uh, conspiring to assassinate him because there was an assassination attempt against him last year, late last year, um, as well as um, how the military um, was, was trying to stop him. And that sort of led up to you saw a lot of campaigning by Imran Khan openly. Um, they had, uh, you know, the military found it difficult to deal with him, including uh, the PDM government as well. They couldn't find a way to sort of contain Imran Khan. And that's sort of the, the pressure built. Uh, Imran Khan's arrest was going to be eminent. There are several cases against him, some related to corruption, some related to, again, as I said earlier, the, the cipher conspiracy. Um, but his arrest seemed to be inevitable and Imran Khan, um, you know, being the sort of, um, as they say, um, uh, the kind of politician that he is, uh, taking a leaf from his sort of cricket days in which he plays on the front foot and, you know, he's a fast bowler. Uh, he did not relent, he did not let go and that pressure kind of built and eventually spilled out from the streets. Um, the military establishment uh, who had been tolerating Imran Khan and, and who had ostensibly vowed to stay out of politics uh, until 9th May uh, have now clearly um, gone back on that vow and gone gung-ho. And you can see that in its manifestations in many ways. I spoke about how after the 9th of May, uh, several uh, Pakistan Tariq leaders who joined Pakistan then again south, partly because of the good relationship that he enjoyed with the military, um, all followed a very similar kind of script. Uh, they would hold a press conference. Uh, they would announce that they're either quitting politics or joining another party or leaving Imran Khan. They would say the they would condemn uh, the rioting on 9th Basically, he's been left alone. He, he, he's yes, been he's left been alone. He is, there's uh, most of uh, the ones, uh, the PTI leaders who are with him are still on the run. Um, many of the, his sort of core uh, committee or core people have left him or uh, have really right. sort of taken back. Um, and he's in jail at the moment. So, so the fact of him being in jail, the fact of his party having been sort of, you know, broken away or, or, or critically decapitated, you, you believe that that might be the reason why the outcome of the elections will be not something that will be uh, very shocking uh, for the Pakistani military establishment. I do think that there's a delay in terms of when those elections will be announced, uh, and I don't yeah, want yeah. to go into the details, but just uh, the elections should have been held uh, in October or yeah. November, now in January. Right. Um, and uh, given we are, how we are looking forward, yeah. So looking forward, all of those factors, which are of course not necessarily in accordance with the constitution, not necessarily very ethical, you believe that they have worked to the advantage of the military establishment. 
Yes, absolutely. And it isn't organic. Okay. It is something that just happened. Okay. Now, Uzair and Sandhyar, both of you can take this question and we can get into it. Uh, the politics is not going to get straightened out. I mean, even if an election is held, uh, Amber rightly pointed out that the 2018 election was controversial uh, because people cried, cried foul and said Imran Khan had been unfairly helped uh, and the other political parties had been unfairly undermined. Uh, won't the reverse of that happen this time? And so the similar kind of environment will remain. So the legitimacy uh, of the new order will still be questioned. There will still be a dispute and there will still be a crisis. And if that is the case, how do you mend the economy there without mending the politics? I think that's the that's the multi-billion dollar question for Pakistan at this point, given that it needs about I don't expect you to write that check. So <laughs> I uh... Yeah. So let me let me get into sort of the problem here in terms of the strategy that's playing out politically, right? As I said, the first order question is um, are there elites on either side of the spectrum, whether they are technocrats, whether they are uh, aligned with the PDM slash PMLN or the PTI. Are there people uh, in the sort of core inner circle of influence that have abandoned kakunomics theories, as I refer to them? And the answer to that is no. The second challenge, of course, is going to be that to do the types of structural reforms Pakistan needs, um, there is a significant need to have a legitimate government that can convince the people of the country that unfortunately, unfortunately, more pain is around the corner and you need to absorb more pain. So if you continue down this path of repressive politics or a repressive society, how do you convince uh, a country whose median age is 23 years old, uh, where 80 million people are on TikTok, um, and many of them are jobless, as you put in the introduction with youth un unemployment through the rise, and forget youth, it's across the board at this point in time. And I think the final challenge here will be that even after elections, if you are basically in a situation where the military establishment is firmly in control, you will have an army chief that is going into his second year and by the end of 2024, looking at possibly another extension and that dogfight begins within the institution, it will take attention away. So all of the guarantees that the chief has made to people domestically and internationally to realize some inflow of money, which we don't know when and if that is even coming, which we can debate as well. Um, will he remain focused on whatever the reform trajectory is? Um, and the answer to that, of course, if we look at history is no, because politics and, and the whole dynamics of that political fight will will consume uh, the military establishment by the end of 2024. Uh, and, they will have to, and they will have to uh, dole out goodies to be able to please various constituent, constituencies, and that basically militates against any economic discipline of the kind that you earlier said Pakistan needs. Absolutely. And I think that's the final point here, because even if you then in that environment have credible and capable people in positions of power, for example, uh, you have somebody more competent than the current governor of the state bank, uh, will the state bank, which is technically on paper independent, uh, push forward positive real interest rates in an environment where the army chief needs uh, a buy-in from elite segments of society who hate positive real interest rates, for example, right? So I think that tension uh, will continue through 2024 and there will be no easy answers 
to solving at least the economic part of the poly crisis facing Pakistan? Aswan, we are political, economic, and then obviously the security dimensions are all interconnected. Right. I think they are. And uh, the big concern remains the convergence of, uh, for me at least, the convergence of the security and the economic crisis. Uh, last time around, Pakistan had such a such a big security crisis. Much of the international community was on the side of Pakistan. The U.S. government was uh, was helping Pakistan in a, you know, in a big, big way, there was a lot of security assistance, civilian assistance uh, flowing to Pakistan. And, you know, at that help, uh, there was, uh, there were political issues at the time. I'm talking about the era in which you were the Pakistan's ambassador in, in, in Washington. And I think despite challenges to, despite political challenges and, you know, political bickering uh, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, the security crisis was, was managed with, say, some international help and assistance, uh, and the then military leadership was both able to... Both security and economic assistance were flowing. Both security and economic assistance was available uh, at the time. This time around, uh, Pakistan does not have that kind of uh, um, help available from the international community, certainly not from, from the U.S. government. We, we're, we're yet to see how the Chinese might step up. They are you know, refinancing and rolling over loans, but that ultimately is in, insufficient. Uh, and I think that increases the stakes of the of the political crisis we are we are seeing uh, in the in the country. That being said, I suspect the the military leadership will try to manage the security crisis uh, by working around the political crisis. Um, uh, and we see that in the in the current policy approach uh, toward. Um, Afghanistan, the, the Taliban, um, you know, just by way of example, a week after Imran Khan uh, lost uh, power um, uh, back in 2022, uh, the, the Pakistanis carried out airstrikes across the border into, into Afghanistan. So big decisions of war and peace in Pakistan have been made independent of whatever the political state of play is. And I by, suspect the by the military leadership. And I suspect that will continue uh, to be the case. But ultimately, whatever equilibrium Pakistan finds, if Pakistani uh, uh, leaders are able to make security gains, those will be fleeting uh, and unsustainable. And given the lack of political legitimacy and cover for some of the security strategies that we're likely to see in the in the coming months and years, uh, I, I fear that we might be back to square one, uh, even if uh, some of those strategies work out. So three young people, all of you painting a relatively gloomy picture. Any uh, silver lining to any of the clouds? Any one of you can go first. Uzair? Well, uh, since you put me on the spot and I think Amber was about <laughs> to say something as well. Um, no, look, thank, God, just, thank God I didn't have to go first. Well, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the bait. Uh, I saw you I saw you unmute yourself, so I assume that, ah, he has something to say. That's why he's unmuting himself. I well, gave, I'll Amber, take two more minutes to think. I'll say what I've said, I think, before and written about before as well. The fact of the matter is that the economic challenges Pakistan faces are not that complicated. They are not rocket science problems that need to be resolved through some creative mix of economic engineering. It requires basic, prudent macroeconomic policies with a credible roadmap that is executed and led by credible people at the top who convince not only 
domestic constituents, but more importantly, international creditors, that A, there is a plan, and B, we're going to stick to the plan. And I think but all yet, that, that, has, that has not happened for years. I mean, exactly. Uh, the first time similar words uh, were uttered uh, were, was by Dr. Mahbubul Haq, uh, the famous Pakistani economist, uh, the late Dr. Mahbubul Haq, way back in the 19, late 1970s, I remember reading him say similar things, you know, macroeconomic fundamentals, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. None of that happened. So obviously there is something within the body politic, within the social structure that doesn't let it happen. So where should we take hope that it and will so, happen, could happen this time? And and that's that's the challenge, right? You're absolutely on point because if if you were to look at economic literature and describe Pakistan today, Pakistan is not a capitalist or a socialist or a communist society. It's a kleptocracy, meaning that the country's resources have been captured by a very narrow segment of elites in the country. The UNDB puts a number to this. It's seventeen and a half billion dollars a year that is doled out to military inc feudal landlords, large business corporations. Those are the three big chunks that the UN says are, are sort of part of this elite capture. And just to put things in perspective- 17 and a half billion. 17, 17 and a half billion with a B. Just to put that number in perspective for the global audience here, the 2022 catastrophic floods in Pakistan, the loss and damages and the rebuilding cost, all combined of those floods is 30 something billion dollars. Meaning, that dole outs worth less than two years of money to the elite in Pakistan would repair all of the damages and send some more uh, to the people of Pakistan, some 33 million people who were affected by this. The challenge always has been political, which is the beneficiaries of the status quo of this elite capture, captured kleptocracy, as I describe it, are the same ones we time and time again expect to reform the status quo. And that goes back to your point of how long we've been saying this is the fact that the very top people would be the first losers if true and meaningful reform ever happened in Pakistan. And that's why this cycle continues to go on. The only change this time, in my view, perhaps, is as Aswan was also alluding to, is that the type of economic and security assistance Pakistan has received from 1947 onwards through the war and terror and then CPAC being the last handout, that's not there right now. So maybe, just maybe, that might convince the elites in Pakistan that that handout is not... The cushion is gone. The cushion that was provided by external assistance is gone. So you see that as a silver lining on this cloud. Absolutely. Okay, Amber, silver lining. All right. I, I actually managed to pluck out two. Um, I think we have an independent uh, chief justice uh, heading the Supreme Court at the moment uh, who's spoken very openly against uh, military coups and interference. Um, who I will say um, has uh, a good idea of how to reform Supreme Court, prevent, I mean, we've seen the politicization of Supreme Court as well over the last two years. Uh, and I think that's, that's uh, good news uh, all around. Uh, there's several important cases before him. Let's see how that, those play out. And I think the second thing is that, you know, I, I do think elections at the moment are more likely than not. Um, and if they do happen, um, then we do have political parties that have been worn down uh, and have conceded far too far too much, uh, but also cognizant of the fact that um, unless they, uh, you know, as as soon as the sort of 
competition of elections is over, there is a recognition that there needs to be some minimum understanding or, you know, uh, in terms of whether it's the economy or in terms of politics or human rights. Uh, and uh, it is a long process. I think the third thing would be that civil society in Pakistan has, has broken as, as it's been and journalists in Pakistan have faced a lot of repression over the last few years uh, do continue to push back uh, against um, the loss of uh, their rights and, and human rights as well. So basically, going back to democratic theory, democracy functions best if there is an elite consensus, if I'm not mistaken, and you think that there may be an opportunity for a new yes. consensus, which involves the judges, which involves the political parties who have all made mistakes, uh, which involves the military as well. Something that in a recent article, and let me plug that, it's available on the Hudson website for those who would like to read it. It was titled, A Grand Bargain, Anyone? Uh, and basically the idea was exactly the same. Can Pakistan have a grand bargain in which the judiciary decides to decide cases on the basis of law rather than political expediency? The military makes sure that it uh, limits its uh, role in the country's affairs to the areas that it knows best, which is national security, and uh, the political parties figure out how to work together uh, under well-defined uh, rules of the game. Asfandiyar, you are the third yeah. one, and the last one, to tell us if there is a silver lining to Pakistan's persistent crisis. I think the, the silver lining right now is that there is a real sense of crisis, um, you know, and the Pakistani leadership and Pakistani elites feel that. I cannot say the same about uh, some of the previous rounds um, of the of the poly crises in which the elites were insulated. The leadership felt that, uh, that they had an out, that they were too big to fail, that, you know, that a Western country uh, or maybe, you know, some other country would, would bail them out. Uh, I think there is a, a, a growing recognition, uh, in particular uh, because of how these crises have played out uh, over the last year, that there's no help coming, uh, and that ultimately Pakistanis have to have to solve their their own problems. So, so I think uh, that gives me gives me some hope. Uh, however, as Uzair and Amber have outlined, uh, some of the approaches that are being considered and employed are. Uh, uh, you know, our, uh, uh, their prospects don't look great, but uh, uh, but the sense of crisis is is real. And then, in you know, in sort of in my domain, really quickly, I hope the sense of crisis will lead to uh, a reevaluation of uh, you know Pakistan's foreign policy choices, in particular with respect to India, uh, and you know, on the question of the U.S.-China balance. Um, I think with India, we've uh, uh, we've seen the you know the, the the Pakistani state and you know multiple governments dig in on on positions that are you know not all that constructive. You know there is some um, obstacles on the side of Indians as well uh, in in twenty twenty three, but certainly there is a uh, there is a lot of baggage there in that relationship. But but I think you know given the this this current moment of crisis, uh, the Pakistanis will do some themselves, you know, big service by looking at that relationship of some of the things they've done in the past uh, and trying to chart a future that is, uh, you know, that is uh, better for Pakistanis first and, and, and foremost. And then with respect to the U.S.-China balance, I think Pakistan swung, you know, a little too much 
you know, in the in the other direction. Whereas strategic competition is intensifying, uh, and these crises play out in that backdrop. Uh, I hope uh, Pakistani leaders, um, you know, recognize uh, that uh, uh, that there is a cost to alignment uh, of um, you know of uh, military alignment, you know, other forms of um, uh, you know alliances and alignments that they should be very careful about. Uh, and 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 calibrate the balance between the United States and China accordingly. Just well, thank you very much on, on the China one. Just for the international audience who may not be aware, thirty percent of Pakistan's external debt currently is owed to China, and Sri Lanka, which is going through a major major crisis, which default went into default, only ten percent of its external debt was owed to China. So to echo what Aswandiar was saying about the strategic competition. The backdrop is significant and the amount of money owed to the Chinese is far more significant than what the Sri Lankans even had in the bank. So, you know, just for context. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Amber Shamsi, Uzair Yunus, and Asfandiar uh, Mir uh, for explaining to our audience why Pakistan is in the midst of a crisis once again uh, and how it might actually be a good thing that the rest of the world is not rushing to rescue Pakistan from this particular crisis because that is forcing Pakistan's elites to rethink their strategies and their attitudes in the economic, political, and security domains. It reminds me of the great Urdu poet Ghalib who said, Dard ka had se guzarna hai dawa ho jana, which means when the pain reaches its height, that is the time when everyone searches for a cure. Thank you all for joining us.